0: As letters often have the recipient mentioned at the commencement, it's no surprise that Peter follows uh, that practice in this epistle of his. What might be more of a surprise is that the sender would put his name right at the very beginning. We usually would do that at the end of a letter if we were writing it today. But in Bible times, the practice was that the sender would mention himself right at the very beginning. So Peter introduces himself here as the writer and he tells us Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that is a reference to himself and to uh, the position that he had. And then he goes on to speak about those and to those uh, that he is addressing this letter to. And there are some things that he mentions that are applicable to their earthly condition to how it is with them in this world at that particular time. For example, there in verse 1, he speaks of them as strangers. They are strangers, strangers in the world. Now that word has the sense of being a pilgrim in this world. There's a couple of other places where it appears and it is translated as such in the New Testament. We're pilgrims, we're only passing through. This world is not our home I'm only passing through my treasure my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. We could take those words and certainly apply that here and say we're we're sojourners. We're only here for a little time and passing through and we are going on to our eternal home. There is a hope that is within us. And it's not too far into this uh, epistle where Peter begins to speak about that hope that is before us because if you come to verse 3 you will see that he mentions there of those that are begotten unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's a lively hope. And then if you uh, work on down through that chapter, with the verses that we have been reading, for example, if you come down to the latter part of verse 13, it speaks there about the end, uh, the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's a name that he has in view, and we're going to think about that as well. So Peter here is thinking about them as they are, pilgrims in the world, strangers. Because this world is not our home, then we're not going to be received by this world. We're not going to be welcomed by the world. We're not going to be those that are of the same mind. We've got an entirely different spirit within us. We're on our way to another place. So Peter describes them as strangers. Then he describes them as those who are scattered. You will see that there in verse 1 as well. Now it is taken that the recipients of this letter were scattered Jews, scattered throughout those places, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those are all Roman provinces in what we would understand today as Turkey, the land of Turkey. And that land was divided up in Roman uh, times into various Roman provinces, and here are the listed Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia Minor, uh, and then uh, Bithynia, some of those places you will recognize as uh, we come upon them elsewhere in the Word of God as well. Now it is known that there were Jews who were removed from Babylon by the order of Antiochus, the king of Syria, about 200 years before uh, the coming, the first coming of Jesus Christ, And they were placed in some of these cities in uh, in this region that we're particularly thinking about tonight. And it's very likely that the Apostle Peter, who had been among them and he had ministered to them, maybe some of them were converted through his preaching, he was the Apostle of the circumcision, and he was the Apostle therefore to the Jews. Paul was the Apostle of the uncircumcision. He was the Apostle appointed to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But Peter and uh, John were those that uh, were highlighted as being the apostles to the circumcision. And Peter would have ministered among the scattered Jews, and now he's writing to them from Babylon. He has gone further east because, again, there were Jews that were scattered there as well and living in that uh, part of the world. And he's going from place to place ministering to the Jews. And First Peter chapter 5 tells us that Peter wrote this epistle from the, the city of Babylon, the ancient city of Babylon. So he's much to say about them in the earthly sense. And the circumstances that they find themselves in at that particular time. He speaks about them being those who are strangers or pilgrims passing through the world. He also speaks about them being scattered. They're not in the land of Israel. They've been placed in some of these locations by those who are ruling over them and directing them in times past. But having said that, when we get to verse 2, he has something far greater to say about them. Because here he begins to speak about their spiritual state before God and how important that is. That's far more important than anything that can be said about our earthly circumstances and whatever those circumstances are this evening in our lives. There's something far, far more important. It's far more important what is our state before God. How can we be described in the, in the eyes of God? And here's what Peter has to say about these believers They are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. What a pedigree. What a pedigree. What great words are these to say of any people? And every child of God can take these words and apply them to themselves. These are said of every single child of God. Our circumstances may vary. One from one person to another person. And there are some things that are maybe applicable to one individual that are not applicable to another. But when we come to verse 2 here and these statements that are made, we have to say they're applicable to every child of God. There, there's no difference in how we stand before God. There's no hierarchy as to our standing in Jesus Christ. There's There's not some who've got a higher standing, a better standing than others. Every Christian has got the same standing before God. And I want us to consider these things. And I I want to do it with the desire that our hearts will be stirred to render thanks and praise unto God. Because you will notice how Peter then goes on to start verse 3. Because he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So when he begins to describe and state what it is as to the standing that a Christian has before the God of heaven, here's an occasion to bless God. Here's an occasion to bless God. And how important it is that we do take time to Stop and to bless God. And today, I wonder, have you blessed God? Have you acknowledged what he has done for you? Well, I certainly want you to do that that this evening. And in a little time as we come to uh, the time of prayer, and as we wait upon the Lord, I certainly desire that you'll give the Lord praise and give the Lord thanks as to what he has done for your soul this evening. So, what we have here in these three statements is first of all the origin, then we have the purpose, and then thirdly, we have the merit of those who are begotten unto a lively hope. And we're going to take each one of these statements in turn and look at them in that particular way. So, first of all, we're going to think about the origin. Where does this originate that you and I might have a lively hope? this evening, that there is an end in view that we can be sure and certain about. Well, it tells us there in verse 2 that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Here is where it all begins. Here is where the origin of all that is our hope this evening. And when we talk about hope, we're speaking about a confident expectation. We're not speaking about something that's Clouded in uncertainty. There's no doubt about this matter. We're speaking about something that is sure and certain. That's how the word hope is used in the word of God. For example, the, the return of Jesus Christ is called the blessed hope. And as we know, there's no doubt about his coming again. There's not the slightest shade of doubt that he will not come again. He's coming. We may not know the exact time, but we know he is coming. So... the. The idea of a hope in the Word of God has to do with a confident expectation. And here is the origin of that confident expectation. It has to do with the Lord's choice. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. There is a choice that God makes. Now, that word elect and the word chosen are the the same Word in the original. For example, let me quote to you a a couple of very well-known verses. You don't even have to look them up. You'll recognize the words immediately. Matthew 20, verse 16. So the last shall be first, and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. And the word chosen there in Matthew 20 and verse 16 is exactly the same word here, Elect. And you could interchange those terms. You could take the word elect back there to Matthew twenty and verse six and say, For many be called but few elected. Or you could bring the word chosen from Matthew twenty, sixteen and put it into First Peter one and verse two, and you could say, Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Because that's what the word election has in mind. It is thinking about the choice that God has made. Matthew 22 and verse 14 repeats the same uh, thought. from many are called, but few are chosen. So there is a choice that here uh, is highlighted that lies at the back of all of this. Here is the origin of the lively hope that you and I have tonight. It, is, it originates in the election of God the Father. The choice that God the Father made His choice to save sinners and to redeem a people unto himself. But even more than that, his choice to save individual sinners. Now when we come to think about this uh, biblical term of election or choice, we understand it in in two ways. And it helps to... uh, Develop our understanding of the choice that God has made when we think about this for a little. For example, it refers to the election or being chosen to occupy a certain office. For example, Saul in the Old Testament was the man whom the Lord chose to be the first king of Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 24, And Samuel said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen. That there is none like him among all the people, and all the people shouted and said, God save the king. So there's Samuel on that day saying to the people, see ye him whom the Lord hath chosen. Well, the Lord had chosen Saul to be the king. He had made a choice. The Lord had made the choice. And he, his choice was Saul. Our Lord made a choice. He chose those who were going to be named apostles. John chapter 6 and verse 70 it says, Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve? Have not I chosen you twelve? And again, here's this thought of choice or election, as we're thinking here of the term in First Peter 1 and verse 2. There is a choice that God has made, and there he made a choice as to who were his apostles. And he chose 12 of them. He didn't choose 10 or 13 or 15. He chose 12. He says, I have chosen 12. The Lord made his choice. So it can be used to refer to a choice to hold an office. But then it can also refer to a state before God. To a state before God. Israel as a nation were thus chosen. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6, it says, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. So again, there is emphasized there the choice that the Lord made. In the middle of that verse it says, The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. There was no nation like Israel, because God had chosen that nation. God chose the nation of Israel. He chose Abraham. When Abraham was living in Ur of the Chaldees, a Shemite man living amongst the sons of Ham, and God singled that man out, And chose him and said that the Lord would bless his descendants through Isaac. And the Lord made choice of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then the nation. When they came out of Egypt and they were formed as a nation, the Lord made choice of them. They were his people. He emphasized that to them in The book of Deuteronomy, I've just quoted one verse there from chapter 7 to you, but there's a number of verses that you could turn to in Deuteronomy, all emphasizing the choice that the Lord made of them as a people. They were going to be his people. So Israel as a nation in Old Testament times were the subject of the Lord's choice. And then it's also applicable to sinners chosen to inherit eternal life. Now we're coming up to what Peter has to say here, about these saints in these various regions. And you and I are here as well pictured sinners chosen to inherit eternal salvation. Listen to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse 13. It says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation, through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. So here's Paul writing to those saints at Thessalonica. And he says, we're, we're bound to give thanks to God always for you. Well, what's the cause of this thanksgiving? Well, he says, because God hath from the beginning chosen you. He has done so from the beginning. And that's a reference to way back into eternity. In the beginning, God. God didn't begin to exist when time started. When God created time, space, and matter uh, as part of the creation, God didn't begin then. No, God is from eternity past, in the beginning God, way back in eternity past. And here's Paul saying that God made choice of those believers in Thessalonica. God chose chose you, chose you to salvation. So there is... Here stated, and Peter is highlighting this as well, there are those who are chosen to inherit eternal life. Now it tells us that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Nothing influences that that choice that God makes. Nothing influences that choice. Or else it wouldn't be a sovereign choice. If something influenced God, then he is not sovereign. To be sovereign, God makes a choice And he is not influenced by anything. And so it is with those that he chooses to save. They're not worthy. They're undeserving. They're hell-deserving. Ill-deserving. There's nothing good in them. And again, we, we could go back to some of those verses that we have in mind there in the book of Deuteronomy that I mentioned a moment or two ago. And the Lord said that to Israel. On the borders of the land of, of Canaan, he said, you're not to think that somehow you're a better people than others, that that's the reason why I chose you. Maybe there was some element of pride that had crept in, and they thought that they were some kind of a, a special people, and that's why God had chosen them. No, that was the wrong way around. The special, the special nature of, of this comes after the choice, not before it. God makes choice of whomsoever he will. And he does make choice. And whether it's those saints in Thessalonica, whether it's these saints here in in these regions that are mentioned in verse 1 that Peter is writing to, whether it's you or I tonight, the same truth stands. God makes choice. And if he has chosen you and I unto salvation, then that's cause to bless his name. Because we are unworthy and undeserving of such a blessing. So you have the origin here. I want you secondly to consider the purpose. And that brings us to the second statement that is found here in verse 2. Through the sanctification of the Spirit. Through the sanctification of the Spirit. Now there may seem to be a change here in the usual order when we mention persons of the Godhead. Because we've moved from the first person of the Godhead now to the third person of the Godhead. Well, it's always important to remember that the persons of the Godhead are co-equal. And therefore they are worthy of equal honor and equal glory. And there are times when the order uh, is interchanged. It is not always the case that we speak about the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now there is a reason why we do it in that particular order. It's because the Son is begotten of the Father, and then the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's why you have the first person, the second person, and the third person. It's because of how we, God reveals himself to us in his Word. So God begets the Son. That's the second person of the Trinity. And then Father and the Son from them proceed the Holy Ghost. So that is why he is called the third person of the Godhead. But there are times when the order is interchanged. For example, there are times, for example, here, as you have it, it's, it's Father, Spirit, and then Son. And then there's, there's places, for example, in John 14, verse 16, where it's the Son, the Father, and the Spirit that are mentioned in the order. And so we could go on gi- uh, giving references here to different combinations as to how you are presented with uh, the persons of the Godhead for example in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 16 it speaks about the son the spirit and the father John 14 again speaks about the spirit the father and the son so there, there's different there's different orders at different times and here is the an, an example when this this third person is brought in here before the second person of the trinity and I suppose it would be natural for us then to ask ourselves the question, well, is there a reason for this? Well, the, the only obvious reason that I can uh, think about as I read these verses and study this particular verse at, uh, at this time is that there is a bringing together here the, the beginning and the ending. We, we speak about the Lord being the author and the finisher of our faith. Well, we've thought about the author We've thought about the origin. The origin is in the choice that God has made. Now we're thinking about the finish, the completion. So the two are brought here together. And then we'll come on in a moment to think about the merit. How does this all come about then? If I am unworthy and undeserving, how does this all come about? And that will bring us then to think about the statement that is made here with regards to the second person of the Trinity. So when that natural order, the normal order if we want to call it that, is changed and it's not the same as we would maybe expect then I think it is worth stopping and pondering and thinking, well, is there a reason for this? What can I glean from this? And as I say, it's highlighting, I think here, the fact that there is the origin of this lively hope and then there is The completion of it, or to take that term, as I've already mentioned it to you, the author and the finisher of our faith. The God of heaven is the author and the finisher. He is the one who begins a work and he's going to complete a work. So we're coming here to think about the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. You see, the end of God's redemptive purpose is in view here. And the end involves the work of the Holy Spirit. It involves the work of the Holy Spirit. It involves the Holy Spirit sanctifying a people. You see, no one can be an inheritor of the kingdom of God without certain things taking place. Now, when you think about that term sanctification, it comes from the verb to make holy. So, the work of the Holy Spirit here is being set before us as a work of making sinners holy. Holy. Well, you will then think about Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. It says, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. So we can never realize this lively hope. We can never realize that end that is there before us as it is mentioned in verse 13. That end that is brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We can never arrive there. We can never participate enjoy this if there's not holiness within us. Without holiness, it says, no man shall see the Lord. So it is absolutely essential, then, that if this lively hope is ever going to be realized, that there is indeed this work of making us holy. And it is the work of the Spirit of God to do just that through sanctification of the Spirit. Through sanctification of the Spirit. So there is a work here uh, that the Spirit does, making us holy. Now we can break that down into some particular aspects. For example, the work of sanctifica- sanctification commences with regeneration. It commences with that work whereby we are renewed after the image of God. Ephesians 4 verse 23 says you're renewed in the spirit of your mind. Galatians, uh, Colossians 3 verse 10, you've put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. It's speaking there about regeneration. Here's the commencement of this work. There has to be a new nature put within us. We can never become holy with the nature that we have. The nature that we have is not a nature inclined to holiness; it's inclined to sin. And therefore, that whole that nature that is within us by nature has to be changed, and has to be uh, receive a new nature, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit. To do that. It commences with regeneration. It commences with the new birth. Being born again. Being converted. However you want to describe it. There's a number of, of biblical terms that will refer to regeneration. The new birth. Where we take a, we receive a new nature. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And it, it begins within us with the ultimate outcome of making us holy before God. Because without holiness no man shall see the Lord. So it commences with the work of regeneration. It is carried on day by day within us. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16, it says, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. There is a renewing of the inward man, of that new nature that has been given to us. By those daily exercises of holiness, mortifying our sins more and more, living unto God in, in obedience and all the duties of a Christian life. It's summed up here in, in one word there because it mentions obedience through sanctification of, a spirit, of the Spirit unto obedience. Now the obedience can refer here to the obedience of, of the Christian as the Spirit works within them and that new nature outworks itself. As we'll come on to see that a term obedience can also apply to Christ. But there is that obedience that is required of those that are born of God. There's a new nature that has been imparted and that new nature is going to be marked by obedience. The Christian is going to, by daily exercises, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's going to be a renewing of the inward man. Day by day. So it commences with regeneration. It's carried on day by day as we mortify our sins and as we produce those fruits of, of the Spirit that are going to be the mark of a child of God. And then it is completed. It is completed with glorification. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Oh, there's a good work that has begun within us. There's a good work. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that has begun within us, regenerating us, carrying forward that that growing likeness of Jesus Christ, that growing obedience that there is to him. Until then that day of glorification comes. Either we we die as the Lord tarries and our souls are immediately made perfect and enter into his presence and our bodies await that day of resurrection, glorification or whether it will come to pass for those who are alive on the earth when the Savior will return. But here is the completion. Here is the end, you see. We've thought about the origin. We've thought about the one who begins, the author of all of this. Now we're thinking about the finish, the completion. And the completion is glorification, where we are made holy. We're going to be changed and made like unto Christ. And how glorious a thing that will be, that we are made like unto Jesus Christ. This is reason to give thanks to the Lord, that the Lord would take a sinner like you and I, defiled and unclean, sinner bound for hell, and that the Lord would begin to sanctify us and make us a holy people. You'll know there that further on down that chapter, we finished off reading about that call to holiness in verses 15 and 16, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Oh, how blessed a thing that the Lord brings about that holiness. How else would we ever see the Lord? We cannot do this of ourselves. It is not possible for us to make ourselves holy. It is the work of the Holy Spirit within us that makes us holy and prepares us and fits us to dwell with God for all of eternity. Isn't there reason then to bless God as Peter does here in verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. Oh, there's reason tonight to bless God, that he would take a sinner out of the dunghill and set them among princes. That brings us then to the third of these statements. And here we have the merit. Why why does the Lord do this? How does the Lord do this? Well, we're told here about the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the third statement. And we come here to the second person of of the Trinity. And here are the grounds upon which we are admitted to this experience and uh, to the joy of this lively hope. (coughs) It is by the merit of the second person of the Trinity. Now there is here an an obvious uh, allusion to the sprinklings of blood that are mentioned in the Old Testament system of worship. That language of sprinkling is... Very well understood by by the Jews and Jewish converts are immediately going to recognize these statements and make a connection, for example, in exodus twenty four verses six and eight, there it speaks about Aaron and how he was to sprinkle the blood. There was the blood that was sprinkled on a number of occasions. you see the the, the blood of the sacrifice was not only to be shed but it was also to be sprinkled. And then the sprinkling of the blood, it denoted that the benefits designed thereby are applied and imputed to the offerer. That was the significance of the sprinkled blood in Old Testament times. It denoted that the benefits designed thereby are applied and imputed to the one offering the sacrifice. And thus the blood of Jesus Christ, that all-sufficient sacrifice, that sacrifice to end all others, typified in all of those Old Testament, sacrifice was not only to be shed, but it must be sprinkled. The benefits must be communicated to every one of those who have been chosen by God and who are subjects of the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why it speaks here of the sprinkled blood. Because the thought here is of blood applied. Not just blood shed, but blood applied. And my friend, there is no other way for you and I ever to know that lively hope if the blood is not applied. It's like as it was illustrated in Egypt on the night of the Passover. Not, over, not only was the Passover lamb's blood to be shed, but that blood was to be taken and put upon the doorposts, and then upon the lintel, blood applied. The blood has to be applied. And where you read about the sprinkled blood, that is the thought that is there. That we must always keep before us the blood applied. The sprinkled blood. Because here is the merit. Here is the grounds upon which all of this takes place. Because by the obedience of Jesus Christ there is a putting away of sin. There is a putting away of that which would hinder us from having this lively hope. And would rob us of this lively hope. Sin is a thief. Sin is many things. and Sin is a thief. It has robbed us, and it will continue to rob those who are in their sins, unrepentant, unregenerated, uncleansed, unwashed. It will rob you, my friend, of blessings in this life. It will rob you of heaven in the end for all eternity. Sin will take you down to hell. It is by the obedience of Jesus Christ that we obtain this lively hope, because it is by the obedience of Christ that our sins are dealt with, And it is in the sprinkling of the blood of Christ that denotes that you and I have personally and individually come to benefit from the work of Christ. Let me set some things before you here. You see, it is through faith in this blood that we obtain the remission of sins. Romans chapter 3, verse 25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God. God sets forth his Son as the propitiation for sin, the sacrifice to put away sin, so that you and I can have remission of sins, become inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. It is that blood of sprinkling that justifies a sinner before God, Romans 5 and 9. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Oh, when the blood is applied, my friend, the individual sinner is justified. Yes, the blood was shed that day at Calvary. One sacrifice never needs to be shed again. But you and I individually are justified before God the moment that blood is sprinkled, that blood is applied to our lives. And I ask you tonight, has the blood ever been applied? Personally and individually, has the blood been applied to you? Have you personally received the benefits of what Christ has done? It's on the grounds of what he has done. It is the obedience of Jesus Christ The blood of sprinkling that will bring you and I into this experience. You see, the blood of sprinkling seals the covenant between God and sinners. The Lord's Supper is a sign that denotes that. In Luke chapter 22, verse 20, it says, Likewise also the cup after supper. The Lord took the cup and instituted that aspect of the remembrance feast, but he said, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. This cup is the New Testament, new covenant. Oh, the blood seals the covenant. God will not go back upon his word. And with that blood of sprinkling, then you and I are admitted into the presence of God, into heaven itself. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. You see, here's the merit. Here's the grounds upon which all of this comes to pass we have thought about those previous statements we've thought about the author and the finisher that which begins the work the choice that God has made the work of the Holy Spirit that will carry it through and bring it to an end Ah, but here's why it happens here's why God is merciful to a sinner here's why God will give to us a lively hope that one day we'll be with them it's because of the blood of Jesus has it been applied Is it sprinkled blood? Or more than just shed, has it been sprinkled? Because that indicates, you see, personal application, personal benefit. That Christ has died and the benefits of his death have been personally applied to our lives. Here is the grounds upon which all of this takes place. And if that is so, then we are to bless God. Bless God tonight for the lively hope that is within us. One day we'll see the King in all his glory. One day we'll be with him. Oh, there's a lively hope. And may we indeed be those who give the Lord thanks and give the Lord praise.